0: So I've figured out a way to bring this motherfucker in, Tom. Howdy. I guess that's a way. Howdy, indeed. We got Brooks Agnew today. Hollow Earth expert. He sure is. I said. I think during the conversation, he's a master. You know the saying: "What is that? Jack of all trades, master of none." He's like the master and the master. So uh, he is literally a master engineer. He's a best-selling author. Has a master's in quality statistics, a PhD in physics, and he holds four patents. He's been hosting his radio show. And he's got a uh, TV show in the works. So the man knows what he's doing. He's a smart guy.
1: Yeah, time. he uh, will make me and Mike sound really dumb by comparison. Just wait till you hear but him. It's not hard to make this sound. Uh, <laughs> we definitely loved having him on because uh, I personally know I'm going to share this episode with some people because he's not a bullshit guy. He's uh, all about his scientific facts. He's very educated, and I think he uh, blends his presentation for his info well.
0: This is mostly about Hollow Earth, but we uh, delve off into a couple other areas, too. Um, the UAPs, aliens, uh, some of his beliefs in that, which was kind of cool. Uh, I liked where he was going. I liked his ideas. Tom and I aligned with a lot of what he was uh, putting out there. So, anyway... Here it is. Hope you enjoy it. We're going to be talking to Brooks Agnew. Uh, Brooks, is a, a you're a master engineer. You're a best-selling author. Uh, you have a master's in quality statistics. You have a PhD in physics. I mean, what what can't you do? You have four patents. You host your own radio show for, what, about two decades now, right? Almost,
2: almost 20 years. This March will be 20 years.
0: I mean, there's a saying that's a jack-of-all-trades and the master of none, but you sound like you're the jack-of-all-trades and the master-of-all-trades, you know?
2: Well, I guess they call that a renaissance.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, a renaissance, man. Yeah, that'd probably be a better way of putting it. But uh, yeah, so but Hollow Earth is the big thing that you're known for, would you say?
2: Um. Uh, well, in certain communities, yes. Yeah, I kind of uh, put the consolidated all the major science that has to do with Hollow Earth.
0: And, and that's exactly it. I think that's what separates you from a lot of the people, from a lot of the people that do subscribe to that theory is... You are very well researched, very well spoken, you're not a dummy, and you make it sound not like it's a possibility, but you make it sound like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, of course, that's what it is, you know.
2: <laughs> well, we try to set up a null hypothesis, which is, which means we're going to try to prove that the Earth is not hollow. And if we can't, then that means it is.
0: Mm. Take us through, how did you do that? How did you first get into the the Earth is not
2: hollow or the earth is well, hollow good question somebody uh i think it was about 2001 uh my co-author and i were starting on our first book which was called the Ark of millions of years we thought it was just going to be one book but it turned out to be four but in those days it was just one and somebody had me a book called our hollow earth and i don't remember who the author was but i read it and i thought it was amusing and then i set it aside and um I really didn't pay any attention to it till about 2004, and there were a couple things that happened in the space community that let me believe that maybe we don't have an Earth built the way that we've always been taught. Now, we've already been taught we live on a molten ball floating through space, and we live on these tectonic plates that kind of float around on the surface like cornflakes in a bowl of milk. And that's what it says in our textbooks. And when we have earthquakes, we have all these waves that come through the planet and we pick them up with all the seismometers we have around the planet. And we, we um, have shear waves and pressure waves and shadow waves. And that's what it says in the textbooks. And we just, you know, always kind of took it for granted that that's what makes our magnetosphere and makes us so unique in the universe. But uh, what happened in late 2004 was we got a, an image from one of our satellites of earth from space and it showed auroras over both poles at the same time and we've always assumed that the auroras were caused seasonally by the collision of the solar wind with our upper atmosphere and if that's the case only the windward side of the earth should have an aurora not both sides at the same time so it put into fast track a science program called the Themis probe. And they put the Themis probe together in very fast order, five satellites. They stuck it in one nose cone and launched it in 2006. And the idea behind these satellites was that they would position themselves at different orbits, kind of like Jacob's ladder, different concentric orbits. And when they lined up, they were going to turn the system on and try to measure the energy around the Earth because we were just looking for a source for the auroras. And what happened is between satellites three and four, what is described in the report as a cosmic bullet appeared out of nowhere, just out of in between dimensions, I guess. And that that explosion of energy, of course, went out in. 360 degrees in all directions, two satellites, they were outside of it and went out to space and passed the other two satellites toward earth. And as soon as it reached the upper atmosphere, boom, there was the Aurora. So the report was officially published by my colleagues at JPL. The Aurora is caused by cosmic bullets. And, and that was it. That was the report and then satellites four and five, we reposition, we moved them out of Earth orbit and they are now in orbit around the moon. They've been repurposed, but they never repeated it. And I always thought that was very peculiar that they had one answer and that was it. That was the end of the, the Themis program. And then there were other things that started to line up and I, I called this at the time sand in the balance. So like if you have a double beam balance, you know, two pans on the table and it's it's equal, like like Lady Liberty. And you start putting sand in one side, then it begins to tilt. So, over the years, what happened was it wasn't stories or personal testimonies or, I don't know, people that say they traveled to the hollow earth or telos or any of that stuff. It was hard science, million dollar hard science programs that started putting sand in that balance. And I started accumulating that information and in a cross disciplinary way tying them together so that i could see a coordinated program over everything from planetary core geology to astronomy and i started to see a picture emerge and that picture was that the the not so public scientific community although they have a lot of money were convinced that we don't live on a molten ball floating through space so I started putting that information together and created this 90-minute presentation called the Hollow Earth Theory, and that's uh, that's what has started the movement, I guess. Your work has been absolutely
0: tremendous. You mentioned a million-dollar, uh, some of the million-dollar experiments. Can you explain some of those million-dollar experiments to people oh, yeah. people yeah. like yeah. that that have an intelligence level of uh, of an ant like myself? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, one's called, um, well, let's see, let's, let's go with uh, Dr. Y sessions. I guess he's the next big story. Washington university in St. Louis had some grad students that Y sessions employed for basically lukewarm coffee and pizza. And, um, their job was to go through 600,000 seismograms. These seismograms are generated by a seismometer which is an accelerometer that measures vibrations in the earth. And we have a couple ways of measuring them. One is the Richter scale, which a lot of people are familiar with. Like, you know, this was a 6.5 or a 7.8 or whatever. And the other is um, a two-part scale. We call it an algorithm that measures not just the intensity, but also the depth of And whether it's parallel or vertical, that is to say, is it vibrating up and down or side to side relative to the surface of the earth? And we get a much more descriptive number from this, but the seismogram itself is basically just raw data and it has never been tied together. So we have, I don't know, 24,000 earthquakes a year or one or greater on, on the Richter scale and the big ones like six or greater really thump the, the surface of the earth pretty hard. And they end up making vibrations, not at just one seismometer, but a lot of them around the planet. And what we do is we measure the transit time from the point of the earthquake to the point that it reaches that particular seismogram. And it allows us to do, if you crunch the data, a... Uh, a CAT scan of the earth. Like they do a CAT scan of your knee or something. They use sound vibrations and the sound passes through different parts of your knee, the bone, the ligaments, the muscles, the fat at different speeds. And so the machine is actually able to interpret and create an image of what your knee looks like. Well, that's what they do with the earth as well. But it took a lot of manpower because this had never been done before. And by the time they got done, they published a paper that said they had discovered the damping waves of, a, of an ocean the size of the Arctic Ocean underneath the crust of the Atlantic. And that meant that there was liquid water and they were picking up the vibrations of waves crashing against a shore on the inside of the planet. That's insane. That's a good piece of hard data. Oh yes. And and then the Japanese and Carnegie Science and Cambridge were all studying what's called spectroscopy. Spect- spectroscopy is like, I don't know if you play guitar, but if you play an acoustic guitar and you want to tune the strings, um, you have a microphone and you have a spectrometer that say tuned to the note C. So you hit or E, let's say you hit the E string and then what you try to do is tune the string so it matches the frequency on the tuner, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So that's basically spectrometry. And what we know because of, of chemistry and experiments is we know the exact frequency of every single chemical bond it's like a guitar string, it makes a certain note, and we know when we put a, a broad band of energy on it, that note that that string will actually absorb that frequency of energy. we call it an absorbance spectrum, sort of like if you had an acoustic guitar and you leaned it up against the wall out of the case in your in your office and you cranked up the music really loud, you're listening to say black Sabbath or something, and all of a sudden in the middle of that music it sounds like somebody just reached out and plucked one of those strings really loud, kind of spooky. But actually what happened is the string on the guitar absorbed energy at exactly the right frequency out of the music. And if you could measure the energy it took to pluck that string, that's the absorbance peak. And we can actually do that when it comes to chemistry. So one of the things that these three labs did is they've been measuring the frequencies and doing spectrographic analysis of the frequencies coming from the core of the earth. And they really didn't know what they were going to find. So this takes a while. It takes a good computer with a good bandwidth and time. And you're trying to narrow it down to find exactly what the core of the earth is made out of. And what these three labs independently determine is that the core of the earth is not molten. It is solid, like a solid crystal. And what they wanted to de- determine is what makes up the crystal. Well, all three labs pretty quickly determined that it was iron. Iron's probably the oldest element in the universe and the most stable. It's at the bottom of the energy curve, so it's it's easy to spot. But there was a side bump on it, like a little second blip on the scale, and they did not know what that was. So they tried to duplicate it in the lab, And what they did is they took iron filings and they put them in a crucible. And then they put the crucible, a crucibles, a little, uh, a special dish for heating up metal to extremely hot temperatures. And they put the crucible in between two industrial diamonds about like, like taking a, a grapefruit size industrial diamond, cutting it in half putting the top half on a hydraulic ram and the bottom one on an anvil and then slipping the crucible between them and then smashing the crap out of them, like what they expect the pressures are at the center of the earth. And then they shot a laser through the diamond to the crucible and heated it up. And they ended up heating it up to over 5,000 degrees C, which is about the surface of the sun. And what happened is they were able to match the iron frequency peak exactly. So they know that the core of the earth is pure iron and it's at somewhere around 5,500 degrees C. The peaks match perfectly. The side hump though is what was confusing and for a long time they didn't know what it was. So they kept enriching, doing all kinds of things to the sample and they finally found it. It was xenon, xenon gas. And as it turns out, xenon gas with iron at that temperature and pressure makes a solid crystal, one giant molecule. And here's the peculiar thing about it. It answered a question from oceanography that we haven't been able to answer in 75 years. And that is, where's all the damn xenon? We have it in the water, but when you go to the air to take a headspace analysis, the xenon's gone. We never knew what happened to it. We, we thought maybe it leaked out into space, but it didn't. It bonded with the iron in the core of the earth. So all these things fall together. And when you realize that a solid iron crystal at that temperature and size is about 15 grams per cubic centimeter, that's 15 times more dense than earth itself. And this answers another question. The one of the things that we've done is we've measured the distance from the earth to the sun to a fraction of a centimeter. And what this tells us, because we now know the distance of the orbit, we know the exact amount of time it takes for us to orbit is we now know the weight of the earth, right? How? And when, well, we know the weight of the earth okay. because it, it's, it's a certain size. We, we don't really care about the size. We care about the weight of the earth. when We're talking about orbits. Okay. But when we compare the weight and the size and the, what we what's called the Lagrange point—that is, the equidistant point between the sun and the earth—we're 1,200 kilometers short. Always happened, never knew why, until now. Now we know it's because the core is ultra dense, and that means that the Earth, at roughly 7,100 miles in diameter, has a gap between the crust and the core.
1: And you're saying that's where the hollow earth or cavernous locations in that ocean you described would be like would be in between this crystal core and the outer layer of the crust
2: well the inner layer of the crust but you're right the outer edge of the inner core gotcha and the distance between the crust and the core is is sort of open for interpretation but it's somewhere between 900 and about a thousand miles uh, i'm sorry between 900 and 1200 miles between the core and the inside of the crust wow
1: and uh you said that this has been measured and like studied by these different scientists and i wanted to ask then what was the like reaction in the academic or scientific community with with these findings because i feel like that should have been made you know much more popular and pushed (laughs) yeah so what was the kind of consensus amongst people once they started uncovering this i'm pretty
2: much a whack job (laughs) Uh, the one thing that uh, phds typically don't do and i'm not exactly sure why because as you said i'm i'm skilled in multiple disciplines is they don't play in other people's sandboxes so the geologists don't talk to the astronomers the astronomers don't talk to the astrophysicists they don't talk to the oceanographers, but I talk to all of them. And when I put all their pieces together, that's the picture that I get. And there is one thing missing. And that is, well, there's another piece of evidence. Let me throw this into you. Uh, in 2008, we know that we had a very anomalous Arctic winter. It was not only quite warm, but the wind was quite intense for a long period of time, like over 70 days. And what this temperature and wind do when they work together is they put stress on the ice and the ice cap does what's called calving, like, like a cow giving a calf or having a calf calving means you get this multi multi mile long crack. And it goes completely through to the water and this piece of ice just breaks off like a big state sized piece of ice just floating away. And that's exactly what happened in 2008. And it opened what we will call the Northwest Passage for the first time And I don't know, we don't even have records, maybe 10,000 years, maybe 8,000 years, but a long time. First time it's ever been navigable. And then it refroze. In 2009 2010 now it's all it's all red ice now It all ice is over and stays frozen all summer but uh, it opened up and that wasn't the weird part the weird part was in 2009 they did the regular scan of what's called rays like stingrays and manta rays they go to Manila Scripps Institute goes to Manila and they sample rays because as it turns out, rays are, are like very sensitive to changes in, uh, ocean chemistry, which means pollution. Like they're like tree frogs. You know, they grow six legs and four eyes and change colors and do all kinds of mutations. And so they were there that year to see, and it was a regular thing. I think they do it every five years. They go test and sample. And normally they find 50 to maybe a hundred different mutations and sometimes a new species but that year they found 1500 mutations and some totally new mutations and here's the real real wild one they found several species that have been dead for a million years except they're alive fully mature frilled sharks dorsal squids all kinds of different rays that are prehistoric and they were live and they've netted them. So the question was, where did these animals come from? And when we couple that with the fact that the Arctic in this particular region was open, we think that they came through the crust, through a crustal vent from the inner sea to our sea. And they got into the Gulf Stream and made their way to Manila. That's incredible.
1: That uh, makes me think about uh, certain different sea creatures or similar, you know, cryptid-like things in the ocean could be related Uh, to that.
2: I like the way you say cryptid. But anyway, the one thing that's missing is an expedition above the Arctic Circle to this region to see if that vent is there. So that's why we put the expedition together. In 2008, we started raising money and of course the economy had something else in mind in 2008. And we have gotten close a few times. In 2021, we booked all the flights, all the trains, all the uh, hotels and everything to get me and my staff to Murmansk, which is where the Russian nuclear powered icebreakers are built and, and uh, based and we were going to charter one of those ships to take us and a hundred scientists to this region of the Arctic Circle to see if we could find this vent. 15 day mission. And everything was booked, everything was paid for. We were ready to go in July of 2021 and the global lockdown destroyed everything. We lost all of our money and we had to start over again. And right now, you can't even buy Russian salad dressing, let alone rent a Russian nuclear powered icebreaker. Mm-hmm. So the whole project's on hold. Wow. And is that that's one of two, or is
0: that the only vehicle that's equipped to to get up there?
2: It is the only vehicle, and there's a there's a whole fleet of them. They're called the Arctica class.
0: That is so insane. I think a lot of people who have dabbled in Hollow Earth probably have came across Admiral Byrd's testimony about Hollow Earth and what he saw when he flew past the Arctic. Are you familiar with it? And if you are, is there any substance to it, do
2: you believe? I am highly familiar with it, and I'm highly familiar with what was represented to be Admiral Byrd's diary, which a lot of license has been taken with that. And there's, I mean, there's so much, I don't know, misinterpretation. I'll be liberal and say that. But uh, he, he flew over the Arctic in 1926, over the Antarctic in 1929. He did another mission in 1947 called Operation High Jump, but we don't know anything about that. It's mostly speculation. Totally top secret. But Bird was an anomaly, to be sure. He wanted to make this flight. I went over his records and the independent records of his flight with a fine-tooth comb. And a lot of things are remarkable about it. You know, he bought the, the airplane, he chartered the Chantilly. He took his plane apart, put it on that freighter, sailed up to the Bay of Spitsbergen. There was no dock that could take this boat. So they were basically anchored a few hundred yards off the beach. It's freezing cold, icebergs are coming in, and they have to build a floating dock to get the airplane in pieces off the boat onto the shore with all their provisions. And by the way, a lot of the provisions were lost in the water because the ice did come in and the Chantilly had to sail or it was going to be lost. So they're there on the shore. They rebuild the airplane on the shore in the weather. And then they fill it up with gas and as much gas cans as they could, him and his engineer could pile in the center of this Ford tri motor. And off they went. They, they took off. And the records show, what well, he says he flew over the North Pole, circled it a few times, and then flew back. But he arrived early, and he said he had tailwinds going in both directions. That's what he reported. And he was navigating with a sextant, because there's no, like, nav-aids or anything like that that you can use up there and a compasses absolutely useless at this altitude or this latitude. So he had to use a sextant to guide himself. So I don't know if you've ever used a sextant before, but on a boat, it's difficult on an airplane. It's like, I never knew anybody that could do it. So evidently he was a, he was very talented, but it was repeated two years later by another pilot and it took him longer. And he actually documented that he flew over the North Pole and back, and he didn't see anything like what Bird said he saw.
0: So what is your belief? Do you think that he was maybe uh, elaborating or fabricating?
2: Well, I'll give you another piece of evidence. There's a little bird that my ancestor, Sir James Ross, who discovered the North Magnetic Pole in 1831, the gull is named after him called the Ross Gull, he discovers this little seagull while he's lurk, uh, searching west of San Josef Islands for the North Magnetic Pole. And the strange thing about this little gull, it's not like a penguin. It's not got a lot of body fat. It's not made for super cold weather. It flies north for the winter. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows to this day, i talked to the world's top ornithologist. He has no idea where this bird nests. In the wintertime. But it has to go someplace warm. In order to nest. So. I think that there is some merit. To his idea. That he flew over someplace with lush green. You know. Uh, terrain. But we have not been able to duplicate it. And you, you can't use satellites. Because they don't give you satellite images. Above the 60th parallel. And the only way to do it is to fly low altitude at 2,500 feet, which no one's going to do because it's too dangerous. I don't even know how bird did it and survived. When we tried to charter a plane, the lowest they would fly is 17,000 feet and we would see nothing but white. So the only way to do this is from the ground and no one's ever done it. It's never been done. This part of the earth has never been seen by human eyes.
0: that's really insane to think that like when you you put it in that perspective I wanted to get your opinion on you know the the recent UFO uh, UAP quote unquote disclosure that's been going on here do you think that if what they're saying or there's any element to it uh, that we are being visited by beings that are already from here do you think that it just makes logical sense that they would reside in the hollow earth
2: well let's just approach it logically i think it is a given in this little experiment we're going to do that ufos do exist there's just too much evidence okay there's too many sightings too many photographs too many unexplained things let's just assume uh that ufos do exist so it doesn't matter whether they're from here and they've been here before we got here, or if they're from someplace else and they're just visiting and toying with us, they're not in the air all the time. They're not. I mean, in any given day, there's probably 6,000 sightings. We don't know where they don't hang out out up there in the air. They got to land somewhere and they're not landing in Oklahoma. They're not landing in Washington, DC, although I don't even know why they would do that. There's no intelligent life there. Maybe they go to the bottom of the sea. We don't know much about the bottom of the sea, but then again, maybe they go on the inside of the planet. In fact, I think if 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 you look at the Kepler program, which is a program that looks for exoplanets—planets that orbit suns—which don't make up all the planets in the in the galaxy, but a good portion of them—there aren't any that you can live on the outside of them. <laughs> you got to live on the inside of them. so it makes sense that if there were aliens here they darn sure wouldn't walk around in our environment the million or so viruses that plague us every hour of the day would surely wipe them out so they probably live on the inside of the planet just makes sense it absolutely makes sense and a lot of
0: ufo sightings are seen either above water or actually in water coming out of water come you know rising out of water um, submerging in water and mm-hmm. in my mind it would be totally logical and plausible that you know somewhere under the vast unexplored ocean there's more than likely caverns that connect in the ocean to the hollow earth right i mean that would only make sense there's probably several a Could whole network. Be,
2: it's probably more more likely at the poles because that is where, at least from a geological core core uh, point of view, the crust would be the thinnest. So during the in the equator, it would be the thickest. Hmm. So it would be maybe over a thousand miles thick, which would be like going from, you know, Miami to St. Louis through solid rock. It'd be pretty hard to negotiate.
0: Okay, so closer to the poles and the ocean
2: would be a more likely scenario for that. I mean, I think so, because, yeah. you know, at, at the poles, for instance, the Arctic, the ocean's 4,400 meters deep. That's, that's pretty deep. That's about 14,000 feet. And its density is approximately one gram per cubic centimeter. And so that means that the crust has to be pretty thin for the Earth to be balanced, way thinner than it would be at the equator
0: kind of getting off the beaten path a little bit do you believe we live on a flat earth
2: um well i'm not a believer Uh, i don't believe in much of anything except for facts and here's what i know for a fact nothing absolutely nothing in the universe is either flat or straight it's all curved and it's all in motion Mm. I also do not believe
0: we live on a flat Earth, so that's refreshing to hear.
1: (laughs) Do you believe there is manipulation or cover-up of the subject of, you know, extra lands or the hollow Earth and places that maybe Hmm. have been explored that they don't want us to know about? Like Like the government already knows? Yeah, and that they have perhaps been there or like that the Nazis were supposedly exploring the hollow Earth or believed in a land beyond our lands that they could go and reside in and that's where they claimed they got their technologies or ideas for like some master race is what some people think was from some inner earth
2: civilization yeah I know there's been a lot of speculation about that I know New Schwaben land down in uh, mm. the Antarctic was uh, a place of refuge for uh, Nazis and U-boats and they had a lot of supplies and things down there I don't really know what the truth is from operation uh um high jump but i do know that it happened i just i just can't trust the sources so i i can't say but um i i when when it comes to government cover-ups i definitely believe in that but and i have plenty of evidence of that but the question i always ask is why and you know when a scientist asks questions of why or an engineer, and they don't really have any data to go by, you start breaking the project up into binary chunks. And this allows us to, it guides us through so we don't just go off in the weeds and go in the wrong direction. We ask logical, Boolean logical questions. For instance, we talked about UFOs. And, and this kind of glances against Operation High Jump as well, because ostensibly there were a saucer-like craft that engaged the forces of Admiral Byrd, and every time Bird's forces attacked, they were counterattacked with devastating results by these more advanced craft. But we have to ask the question, if they are ETs, let's just call them ETs for now. Are the ETS working with our government or is our government working with the ETS? Either way is going to lead to a cover up, but this is a big question because if our government's working with the ETS, what are they trading to the ETS for access to this advanced technology? Mm
0: -hmm. A lot of people would think that, uh, they are trading. The government is giving them permission or authorization if you will to you know abduct people well oh, that's oh, you know i know tucker carlson recently pretty much he, he said as much he, he didn't use those words but if you read between the lines he was hinting at that so a lot of people would would say that Do you find there's any merit or would you would you say that that's a line of thinking you could get behind
2: yeah i think you're you know you got over eighty thousand people a year that just disappear they just Maybe there are people, not many people care about, but about 80,000 plus people just disappear off the earth. So I got to go with that. But, but let's ask the other question. What if the ETs are working with our government? Well, now that's a completely different thing. Because if we think the ETs have been here for, I don't know what, 500,000 years, maybe mm-hmm. this earth has been through several Zeniths. And what, just 200 years ago, we weren't very populated and we got around with horses. I mean, we could shoot an arrow pretty far, but that was about it. If they wanted to take over the world, they could have done it with a 45 caliber pistol in those days. Now we can fly at supersonic speeds. We have radar. We got radio. We got, we're sophisticated, we think. It's anyway, there is 8 billion of us and it's a lot more difficult to take over the world. Now, if the ETs are working with our governments, it means that this superior intellect, superior technology, superior being has been manipulating our world for tens of thousands of years. And all of the crap that we're going through right now is because of them yeah I definitely I subscribe
1: mean, to that <laughs> well,
2: well if you think about it like who was here on this continent when when columbus got here the native americans correct native americans were here
0: and what were they doing probably just having a grand old time not worrying about much
2: right i mean just well, living that's their lives. What history tells us history tells us that all those tribes arapaho blackfoot Cherokee, Apache, they were all killing each other. Sometimes they would ride for hundreds of miles and they would wipe a village out. Men, women, children, just wipe it out. They were brutal. Yeah, they were warring for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years. And there was plenty of buffalo, plenty of trout, plenty of land, plenty of water. They could have just stayed away from each other. And so why did they fight? Why did they try to kill each other completely off? I have the answer, but I want to see if you do.
1: You other first. than power and control, uh, I, I can't think of a special reason.
2: The Native Americans didn't care about control. They didn't care. They were, they were locals. The reason they did it is because their gods told them to do it. Hmm. Whoa. The Man. ETs were here doing it then and they've always been doing it and they're still doing it now
1: oh yeah i would say most if not all uh ancient cultures have the same similar stories about beings either teaching them technology commanding sacrifice from them or you know influencing the affairs and yeah absolutely it's still going on to this day
2: yeah, look what happened when the when the pyramid. Where was it? Uh, it was in the Yucatan. I'm trying to think now where uh, it was. Chimitza. But anyway, on the day that it was come around, finished, the day that it was finished, they sacrificed eighty thousand people. Jesus, that's twelve people every minute, twenty four hours a day for oh. three days. Oh my God! Like, how do you even? You, you got to have a team just to do that. Can you imagine the horror, the terror, the unbelievable pain and suffering 80,000 people in 3 days? Who told them to do that? non gods. God. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is Yeah. I mean, the Hopi
0: didn't the Hopi, I mean all these Native American cultures and their and their rock art and their cave art, they depicted the, their gods, these beings, a,
2: a majority of them did. If you go to the um Mexico Museum of Anthropology, you will see the most stunning collection of cochinas and and these light beings and feathered beings. They're like two to three times taller than uh, the people. And, and they have uh, figurines that they've made of these and, and what they were in, in the process of doing or in the act of doing with them. They were like worshiping and they were being taught and they were being groomed and they were being motivated. And I'll bet you commanded by these higher beings.
0: I mean, all of the the best and bloodiest, most violent wars have been fought over, over gods. So
2: if you go down to Peru and you go out into the desert, the one thing that you'll find would just blow your mind. It's a pile of bones. They call it the killing field and all of the beings that are dead out there they were beat to death with clubs and they all have these elongated skulls mm. so they just look different you know they were just maybe brilliant but physically maybe not uh, strong like you know a, a normal peruvian would be in those days and so they just took these different folk out into the desert and just killed them all that's called genocide sure is. is we're doing the same thing this very hour somewhere on this planet oh yeah people being killed because they look different or because they speak different or because they have a different god well
0: we're seeing that being played out in real life right now yeah yes we are it's unfortunate
2: so i think in my opinion it's time for the ets to leave
1: that's kind of what i was going to get to is it It's fair to say then you kind of believe that there was these entities and they've been residing here and the hollow earth is probably where they would, you know, reside or go hide away at again while they operate as a hidden hand throughout time, manipulating humanity from the very inception.
2: I have a lot of crystal crunching friends around the planet. I've been to a lot of conferences as a speaker and I've met them and they're the sweetest, kindest people you'd ever want to know but I think they, are, they have a misconception of what the ETs are here to do. I don't think they're here to help us. I don't either. Do you think they want to eradicate us? No, far from it. I think human glory is the most valuable commodity in the universe. And if they can get humans to give it to them, they actually live on it
1: energetic vampire if you will yeah Hmm. so Uh. do you subscribe to the belief that these are also some sort of supernatural entities we just got done talking to uh gentleman paul stobbs who specializes in the nephilim and different things different theories related to them so do you think that this could have a uh potential spiritual uh angelic demonic take on it what's your thoughts on that
2: yeah. I mean, uh, the first 2,000 pages that we wrote were were on the Nephilim and, and their influence on the earth. So I know a little bit about them too. And I, I mention them in my books that I write. They're novels, but, uh, you know, I base a lot of it on truth so that people will have aha moments while they're reading them. But I, you know, the fact that there were 200 of these here, maybe some were captured and some were buried in the earth, but, I think some of them are still alive, still operating behind the scenes, still, you know, getting visited by popes and presidents and senators. And yeah, I think that's going on right now. Definitely. Definitely agree with that.
0: I didn't know that your interests over or your expertise, I should say, overlapped in uh, so many other unique areas. I mean, um, I we would love to have you back on, you know, uh, at a future date, you know, uh, to, to maybe explore some of those other areas.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to, no problem.
0: And at that point, we will uh, definitely be video. We're, we're aiming for, you know, right around March or so to, to hopefully be up in, in that regard. Do you have anything in the works? Are you uh, are you in the process of writing a book? Or do you, do you have any projects that you got going on right now that you'd like to talk about or plug real quick? Well, I,
2: I have a couple. I'm, I'm writing my 13th book, which is a sequel to my 12th book, which was called Charm of Favor. Charm of Favor is a true crime story uh, about the rise of the deep state, or what I call the global syndicate. And it, it is an espionage book, but everything in it is true. All the murders, subdivisions, I didn't even change the names, I have real people's names in it. The book had a good ending, but it was, there was a nuclear plot in it that almost succeeded. And the sequel to it, it, I won't tell you the name of it right now because it's still in the works, but I'm 23 chapters into it. It's going to be around 40 chapters. It is, it is what is going on right now. In fact, some of Charm of Favor is still unfolding. These books are very prophetic. I'm able to take current events and extrapolate them out with motivations and good research into what they're trying to accomplish. And lo and behold, that's what happens.
0: Hmm.
2: Wow. You said you had two books? No, 12. There are 12 in print. The three before oh, that sorry. is called the Birth Trilogy, like B-E-A-R-T-H, like Birth of a New Earth. And this is a, a end times thriller. Uh, it also a lot of the events are true in it. And what this book covers is the premise that the planet earth itself is a living thing it's alive and it has a symbiotic relationship with the beings that live on it and man being the only ones that can perceive time have a tremendous consciousness signal and when man more part of mankind is wicked earth has an allergic reaction it rises up earthquakes volcanoes tidal waves and wipes man out down to a few tribes and makes him start over but when man is good then the earth releases its bounty to him and he prospers and what happened in the last 300 years is mankind grew too fast we learned to fly we learned about oil electronics I mean we're traveling in space and we're now 8 billion strong and earth could not keep up with us And as luck would have it, half of us are wicked and half of us are good. And earth cannot decide whether to destroy us (laughs) or release its bounty to us. So it decides to split back into its original forms, a terrestrial form, a lower energy form and a celestial form or a higher, higher energy form, just like in the book of Genesis. So that split also splits the race of mankind. And the split is totally cataclysmic, like rapture, like you've never seen before. And when the worlds end up splitting, they go to war with one another. And that's, we're getting ready to make that into a TV series. Or is it going to be on your website or is it going to be on a streaming service? This is a good question because we're trying to get a major network to pick it up. But if they don't, then we will form our own TV channel. And we will stream it from our website as pay-per-view.
0: Either way, I'm sure you won't have a problem getting uh, a lot of eyeballs on it because we're not the only ones that are fascinated on um, this subject. So uh, I can't well, wait to I see what you 20,
2: got. 20 million people have heard the story. That's a lot. But way more than that will watch it. Oh, yeah. And that that'll make a big difference in the planet.
1: Oh, yeah. This is great work, great stuff. And I'm sure in this conversation, we're just barely scratching the surface. Like you said, 12 books. What was the, the name of this proposed show or program?
2: Um, it's called the birth trilogy, the birth trilogy, the, the birth TV series. And you can, you we'll can definitely uh, be looking out for it. You could Google that, or you can go to my website at com and look up the birth TV series and read about it. Oh yeah. I can't wait to see what comes with that.
0: Awesome. And, uh, we will definitely reconnect, uh, you know, maybe a few months, three, three months or so down the line. And, uh, until then i wish you uh you and your loved ones a happy and a safe new year
2: outstanding same to you my friends thank you yeah great talking thank you for coming on thanks brooks my pleasure
0: bye bye so that was brooks agnew pretty badass
1: smart motherfucker extremely smart and uh i liked how even though he is obviously very fact-based and it seems like skeptical in his own way and uh Mm. Only likes to go off of hard, concrete, scientific evidence, which is good because there's a lot of people out there that, like, when you make extraordinary claims that you need to have some extraordinary evidence to go with it. And uh, I think he does that. But even that being said, he still subscribes to the, the obvious, and, and that lends itself uh, credit that the belief in these other beings and manipulation of mankind by some sort of a hidden being, and we even went directly to the Nephilim that he believes in all of that as well as everything that's, uh, you know, more nuts and bolts, concrete beliefs of his. I think it shows that uh, we got something there.
0: Oh, yeah, a lot of times you'll you'll talk to people. Let's just say you're talking to someone that's an expert on, uh, on ghosts, and um, a few minutes into your conversation, all of a sudden they put something out there about, like, yeah, well, you know, when I was four, the devil used to come to me and jerk me off. And, and they're serious. And it's like, okay, you know, but he didn't get none of that with Brooks. Matter of fact, you know, the Admiral Byrd part of the discussion that we had, I heard a lot of things, like I was telling you, Tom, about Admiral Byrd, like not being very a truthful guy in his story, kind of being bullshit. And when I put it out there, you know, he didn't go for it. No, he didn't go for it. He was well-researched. And the other one was the Flat Earth he didn't go for it he's just all about facts so he isn't a loon like he uh said some of his uh peers have labeled him but yeah he's a good dude can't wait to have him back as well can't wait to have them all back to be honest with you some more than others but so far they're all pretty awesome
1: very very stoked with the uh guest list we have had so far and have lined up gonna be exciting share follow share subscribe Great. Download. Give us all your money. Go
0: to Patreon. <laughs> that too. We don't expect you to do any... Well, no, we do. Pay us.
1: Just be there with the show from its uh, inception. Yeah, it's you want to grow be. better and better. You like it. You want to support it.
0: Be part of the CNC Syndicate, right? Boom. If you do want to help, something really easy to do, you don't even need to get off of your ass, is just give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on, whether it's Spotify, youtube google whatever it is just give us a five-star review even if you haven't heard it because you're you're just probably gonna you're probably gonna feel that way in the end so just save yourself the trouble in the end
2: the greatest prison that people live in is the fear of what other people think what happened to me as a result of all the ridicule i went through is that i stepped out of the fear of what other people thought